Uh, last week, I mentioned a time in which I lived in Vienna. About five years before that, I also had another opportunity to visit Vienna on a school trip. Now, as you know, teenage boys are renowned for their wisdom and discretion, and I was no exception. How many stories I could begin with that line. Uh, one day, my friends and I were walking through a market in Vienna when one of my friends came up to us, and uh, he showed us how you could take this outer bracket off of a disposable lighter and modify it slightly such that you could increase the amount of fuel that came out of the lighter whenever you pressed the button. And so what would normally be about an inch flame on the lighter then became an 8 to 10 inch flame on the lighter. Unsurprisingly, by the time we left the market, every teenage boy on the trip was in possession of a modified disposable lighter. What could go wrong? <laughs> well, that evening, one of our hotel rooms, I won't say whose, uh, got a visit from the Vienna Fire Department. I'll just say I was an eyewitness to the event. <laughs> Apparently, the smoke detector had been triggered. When they, were, when they arrived, thankfully, they found no damage, just uh, two high school boys playing with lighters. Why share this story? It created quite a stir that evening. There's nothing like getting a call from your dad at midnight asking you about it. Uh, my foolish decisions reflected poorly on those whom I represented. On my country, for example, oh, well, this is what Americans must be like. On my family, oh, this must be what Guthrie's are like. As an American and as a Guthrie, I did a poor job representing my own. Well, in our text today, Jesus wants to tell us how we are to represent our Heavenly Father. He wants to answer the question, what does it look like when someone loves Jesus? What does it look like when someone has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them? And he wants to encourage his disciples with a promise of a coming spirit. So pick up with me in John chapter 14. We're picking up where we left off last week in verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? 
Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come here as your people. We come as those who recognize that your Son is the bread of life, that it is upon him and his words that we need to feed regularly. We pray, O Lord, that you would feed us from your word. Empower me by your spirit to preach your truth. Open our minds to receive your truth. And Lord, open our hearts to obey your truth. May we be ever changed because you spoke to us this morning. We ask this in your holy and precious name and for the sake of your glory. Amen. Our first point this morning is the love and obedience which the spirit produces in us. So we've been uh, walking through this gospel. We know that currently we are on the last night of Jesus' life. The Last Supper has already taken place. Jesus has already said that he will be betrayed. He's already said that he's departing. He's going to return to the Father. His disciples, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 14, are distraught. Their hearts are troubled. Jesus has said, let not your heart be troubled. But they're understandably distraught. They've been following Jesus for three years, and he's saying he's about to be betrayed and depart. Jesus is going to comfort his disciples. And in doing so, he's going to give them some commands and some truths in our passage. What is the first thing that we find Jesus here saying? He says this in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I want you to notice that what Jesus is saying there is a promise. It's not a command. He's not saying, if you love me, then keep my commandments. No, no, no. He's making a promise. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And just so we know, this isn't a one-off throwaway statement. He says the same thing essentially four times in our text. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Verse 23. uh, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now, word is a little bit broader than just commands. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, But he says that there. And then in verse 24, he says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So he's saying, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you don't love me, you're not going to obey me. And of course, this is the teaching that we find all over the scriptures. Consider uh, 1 John chapter 2. We have a, a, a slide for this. This is the same author in his letter to the churches, and he says this, and by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So there John is tying our knowledge of God to our obedience of God. And if we went to chapter 5, which we don't have a slide, uh, in chapter 5 he says, uh, if we love God, we will keep his commandments. You can go read chapter 5 later. 
So Jesus is promising, the person who loves me will keep my commandments. I want to be clear, though, what he's not saying, in addition to not giving a command, he's not saying that obeying Jesus makes someone a child of God. Now, my children are called by God, in Ephesians 6, the Ten Commandments. Uh, they are in authority under me, and they are responsible to obey me. But do my children obey in order to become my kids? No. My children are called to obey because they are my kids. And it's the same with us and God the Father. O obeying does not make someone a child of God. Obedience is a consequence of being a child of God. Well, how does someone become a child of God? Of God. Well, Jesus says in John chapter 3, if you recall, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. He said, we know you're a teacher from God because you're doing all these incredible, miraculous things. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and kind of gives him a spiritual backhand. He says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again if you're ever going to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is dumbfounded and he says, am I supposed to crawl back into my mother's womb? What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus says, you need to be born of water and of the spirit if you want to enter into the kingdom of God. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is it with everyone who's been born of the Spirit. You see, it is through being born again that God opens our eyes to behold Jesus as our Savior, and he opens our eyes to behold ourselves as sinners in need of the grace of God. And it is the consequence of the Spirit working on us that we seize the promises of God and as John chapter 1 says, that those who believed in him, that's Jesus, they were given the right to become what? Children of God. Now I recognize that uh, not everyone here today might be a Christian. And if that's not you, I'm so thankful that you're here today. But this is going to be kind of... Uh, going to be an insider discussion. We're going to be talking a lot about spiritual things that frankly are impossible to understand until they've been experienced. We're going to be talking about the effect of the Holy Spirit on our lives. Uh, that said, I would love, if you're curious about what it means to be born again, what it means to love Jesus such that he affects obedience in your life, I'd love to talk to you about that after the service or really any time. So Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Uh, church, this is one of the reasons that, um, you know, as congregationalists, when, when we bring membership candidates to you to vote on, uh, your job is to validate whether or not this person is truly presenting in the faith. Uh, you are called not just to see, is this person professing faith in Christ, but you are called, before voting on someone, to recognize, does this person have a heart that has affection for God? Does this person truly love Jesus Christ? We don't do it perfectly. But you say, how are we supposed to judge whether or not this person loves Jesus? How do we know if we're supposed to judge the, the heart of this person? Jesus gives us many clues. He is the one who said, you will know a tree by its fruit. I told you the story of walking through a citrus grove in Florida. 
There are all these trees, and they look exactly the same until the fruit comes out. And then all of a sudden, the, the limes turn green, the lemons turn yellow, the oranges turn orange. The kumquats are really small, the grapefruit are really big. You see what kind of tree it is once the fruit come out. So it is here. Jesus is saying that you will know the ones who belong to me because they want to obey my commands. Now, does anybody do this perfectly? Of course not. And there's grace. We repent and we move on. But Jesus is, is saying that the person who loves me will have a life characterized by a desire to obey him. And that's a promise. Now, we recognize that this is not natural for human beings. We spoke last week of how the Bible regularly talks about how the human heart is inclined toward selfishness, inclined toward evil. So how is it that Jesus can make such a pronouncement that his followers are going to have a passion for obeying Jesus? Jesus goes there in verse 16, and he's going to enter into an extended discussion on the Holy Spirit. And frankly, Jesus is going to enter into an extended discussion on the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're just not going to have the time to dive into all those aspects, but I'd encourage you to, to come to passages like this as your homework, and you can go through and just consider how the Trinity, all three persons of the Godhead, are at work in accomplishing redemption. It'll be an edifying experience for you. But here Jesus is going to talk about the Holy Spirit. The first thing he does is he calls him our helper. I will send another helper. Or the Father will give you another helper. Dear friends, Christianity rejects a materialistic outlook on life. Uh, materialists are those who claim that Everything you see is all there is. Matter is all there is. There is no spiritual existence. Christianity is so convinced of a spiritual realm that it doesn't even argue for it. It just assumes it and presents the reality of the spiritual realm to us. And so here Jesus is telling us a spiritual truth. I'll ask my Father and he will give to you another helper. That in some sense, when we're given the Holy Spirit, he's there to help us. He's there to advocate for us. We're told that he will be with us forever. This is one of the changes under the New Covenant. That those who receive the Holy Spirit, receive the Holy Spirit forever. Uh, there are no more King Saul's who experience the Holy Spirit for a time, and then God calls the Spirit back to himself when Saul disobeys. No, this is a new covenant reality. He's with you forever. And he calls him the spirit of truth. Last week, uh, David at our prayer meeting brought us a message from 1 John chapter 4. And there in 1 John chapter 4, we're told that there are many spirits at work, many false prophets at work in our world. But there's only one Holy Spirit. There's only one Spirit of truth. We find that the Holy Spirit is the very Spirit which enables and illumines our minds to recognize God's truth when we encounter it. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. I'll give you this Spirit of truth. And the world cannot receive it because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
Again, we just want to think about things spiritually as Christians. Because over and over again, I was just reading in 1 Corinthians 2 this morning, Paul's making a similar argument. Over and over again, we're told that the world is under the influence and power of demonic spirits, of spirits of confusion. But we, in Christ, possess the spirit of truth. And so we have compassion there. We can have love for those who don't yet know Christ. And we can pray that the Holy Spirit would use us to shine Christ's light into their life. The last thing he says here about the Spirit, and this is not everything that there is to say of the Spirit, but the last thing he says here is this. For he dwells with you and will be in you. What does he mean by that? I think this is one of the most interesting things we find in our passage. I mentioned that there are certain new covenant realities that we experience now post-Christ that the saints of the Old Testament did not experience. One of those realities is the outpouring or the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus is saying, yes, you've experienced the Spirit. He's with you. Jesus has sent out his disciples to proclaim the gospel, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and he's given them authority to do so. And yet here's the really interesting thing, brothers and sisters, that you now, if you are in Christ, possess the Spirit in a greater degree than even Peter did before Jesus' resurrection. Have you ever thought about that? You possess a greater indwelling of the Spirit now than Jesus' own disciples did before Pentecost. When Jesus says he's with you and will be in you, he's referring to the coming of the Spirit. That's why he's saying he will give you another helper because his disciples don't have the Spirit like that yet. This is a remarkable thing. It's why Peter at Pentecost, the the Spirit is at work and people are doing all of these remarkable things. And Peter's like, no, you don't understand. They're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. And what does Peter do? He, He quotes from the prophet Joel, this Old Testament prophet. He's saying, guys, this is what the Old Testament was telling us about the new covenant. God says, in those days I will pour out my Spirit and your sons will prophesy, and your daughters will dream dreams, and there's this extended discourse, and it, and it culminates in this truth. That everyone, not just Jews, but everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a really cool truth, brothers and sisters. If you've received Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Of course, the application of this is twofold. Receiving the Spirit of God should change you. You should experience change of heart because of it. And if you haven't experienced the change of heart that the Holy Spirit rots in you, then perhaps you consider, should consider whether or not you are in the faith. This is something that has to be experienced. Uh, one of my favorite things to do, actually, at our church is membership interviews, because when we go into the membership interviews, I get to hear from you guys about how God has been at work in your heart, 
about how you were chasing after sin, completely oblivious to what God wanted from you in life, and God opened your eyes to the reality of, of who you are and, and what you are in your sin, and he brought you to repentance, but he also comforted you with his grace and his mercy in Jesus Christ, with the fact that Jesus loved you so much that he died for you on the cross. And in, and in believing this truth, God changed your heart, and you didn't want to pursue this sin anymore, and you didn't want to dishonor God, but suddenly you had a desire to follow Jesus and to obey Jesus. It's the same basic story for every Christian, but it manifests itself in millions of ways, and it's so encouraging when, when I get to hear you share about what God has done in your life. Jesus continues in verses 18 to 21, and he's still looking to encourage his disciples. He's departing, but he wants to encourage them. He says, I won't leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. What does it mean when he says you will see me and I will come to you? I think he's talking about the resurrection appearances there. Uh, after his resurrection, Jesus does appear to his disciples multiple times. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that at that time when he wrote the letter to the Corinthians, there were still, uh, that there were 500 people who had witnessed the risen Christ in Jerusalem. He says, many of them are who are still alive. So Jesus appeared to his disciples so that when he says things to them, like, I'm departing to my Father, they'll remember this and they'll believe it. And he's comforting, I, I will come to you. Which means that he will be resurrected, which is why when he says, because I live, you also will live. Dear friends, we have hope in our own future resurrection because Jesus Christ really was raised from the dead. That's good news to me. His resurrection means our resurrection. And then he goes on and he explains this wonderful uh, reality for those who keep his commandments. Those who love him will also be loved by God. And he says, and I'll love him and manifest myself to him. Now that word there, manifest, uh, it just kind of means reveal myself to them. Now I want to be clear when he says, whoever loves me, I will love him. That's not a consequential thing. It's not a we love and then God loves us. We know that what 1 John says, we love because he first loved us. We always begin with God's grace. But it's representing a reality for those who are in Christ that we love God and God loves us back. And so Jesus says, I will reveal myself to him. And the disciples are trying to think about what this means. Judas thankfully speaks up. We're told this is not Judas Iscariot. This is a different Judas. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, has already exited stage left. But Judas speaks up and he says, well, Jesus, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now, he's not asking here, why are you manifesting yourself to us and not to the world? He's saying, how? How are you going to go about this, Jesus? And Jesus' answer draws us once more to the Spirit. Consider Jesus' answer here. Again, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 
Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my word. So I mentioned that when Jesus talks about his words here, he's speaking of something broader than just his commands. What does Jesus mean uh, that this person will keep my words? Well, this is part of how Jesus distinguishes how he reveals himself to his disciples and not to the world. It's through his word. And he says this in verse 24, And the word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So what he's saying is the one who keeps my words, or rather the one who recognizes that my words find their source in the eternal God himself, that my words are divine, that's the person who I reveal myself to. The person who recognizes the authority of my words. It's a remarkable truth. And that's why Jesus can continue to reveal himself to successive generations of Christians through the word of God. And the one who keeps my word, the Father will love. And if this doesn't shock you, it should. And we will come to him and make our home or our dwelling place with him. If you've been around the church for a while, perhaps that's shocking. Or perhaps it's rather, I need another cup of coffee. Perhaps that doesn't shock you anymore. But it should. The eternal God, the creator of the universe, wants to dwell within you. That's amazing. But this isn't the only place we find it. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. Here Paul's making the same point. He says, in him, Christ, you, Jews and Gentiles, also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's a remarkable truth. God dwells within us by the Spirit. And by the Spirit, we recognize the truthfulness of God's Word. Well, let's continue going on into verse 25. Jesus says this, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So who is the one who keeps Jesus' words? It's the one who accepts the word of God. That it is the word of God. And here, Jesus is even anticipating the production of the New Testament. Uh, if you recall, uh, there is no New Testament when Jesus is saying this. The Spirit hasn't even been given yet. And yet he's telling his disciples that when I send the Spirit, he's going to remind you of everything I've already taught you, and he's going to even teach you all things. Uh, an example of this would be from John chapter 2. If you recall, in John chapter 2, Jesus has just gone Rambo. He's gotten a cord of whips. He's driving people out of the temple. And the uh, temple leaders come to him and say, Hey, what are you doing? What sign do you give for doing this? And Jesus says to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. And they think he's talking about the actual temple. And in John 2, 19 through 21, we find Jesus' disciples didn't even understand what Jesus was talking about. It says that after his resurrection, they then understood that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. 
And so all of these things that they don't understand yet, the Spirit will open their eyes and the Spirit will help them as they produce the New Testament canon. And then as we've already discussed before, it is the Spirit of truth that then enables us to recognize that the Word of God is the Word of God. He illumines our mind. And this is a lot of deep theological stuff, but there's a lot here, guys. <laughs> We're going to do our best to get through it. So, the main point of our first point this morning is this. The Spirit produces love in us, and the Spirit produces obedience in us. Let's now consider the peace and the fearlessness that the Spirit produces in us. Pick up with me in verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go from here. So again, this is the night before Jesus is crucified. He knows what's coming for himself. He knows what's coming for his disciples. And it's with that in mind that he says to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What peace is Jesus talking about here? Is it an absence of conflict? That's typically how we think of peace. I think there's a sense of that, but it's, it's so much better when the Bible talks about peace. Jesus is speaking of a right standing with God, which means peace with God, which means favor with God. Uh, we recognize, again, the gospel teaches us that every one of us is a sinner by nature and by choice, and our sins have set us as open rebels against God's will. Uh, God will not tolerate sinners. There will come a day when his long-suffering ends, and he will bring judgment on all of those who reject him. So to remain in your sin is to be an enemy of God. And yet, the gospel also tells us that God loves his enemies. God loves his enemies so much that he sent his son to die for them. What a remarkable truth that is. And so we're told that when a person recognizes their sin and turns to Jesus, they're not only forgiven by the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross, forgiven of everything, but that all of the good that Jesus did when he was on earth, God takes that in a process called justification, God takes that and applies it to the believer's account. So when God looks at you, he sees everything. None of the bad you did. He only sees the good that Jesus did. And he promises that on that great day of judgment, which is awaiting all of us, you'll stand before the throne of God and he will pronounce you not guilty. He'll pronounce you 
righteous. Not because you're so great, although I really do like you guys, but because of Jesus and what Jesus has done for you. That is the peace that Jesus is talking about. Peace with God because of Jesus. A peace that cannot be taken away. We're told that we exist in the palm of God's hand and no one can snatch us out of God's hand. Because of Jesus, we actually have favor with God. Now, many of you here have children here today. I want you to think about some of your happiest memories with your children. I want you to think about when they were little and you got to cuddle them or as they grew up and they started doing things that just made you so proud and your heart was full of joy. Uh, maybe a family vacation you took and you just had a great time together. Just think about some of these happy memories that you have towards your kids. Think of the happiest moment you've experienced. Multiply that by infinity. And that is how God feels toward you if you are in Jesus Christ. That is how God feels toward you. He wants you to call him Father. He loves you. I was going to quote the end of Romans 8, but I can't remember it all. You know what I'm talking about there. It's a remarkable truth. That should give you peace. Your eternity is secure. You are not God's enemy. You are his beloved child. And he has you in the palm of his hands such that no one could ever snatch you out. It's so much better than just an absence of conflict. Jesus says, the peace I give is not like the peace the world gives. And by that, he just means the world at its best can give a false hope. Every generation, some charismatic leader rises up somewhere, promises peace, promises uh, some kind of utopia, and ultimately just makes things worse. But God's peace isn't just a false hope. God's peace is real. It's eternal. And here's the really good news about God's peace. If you have peace with God, the almighty creator of the universe, you can have inner peace. And you can have an inner peace which is not dependent on your outward circumstances. Example A, Jesus Christ on the night of his betrayal. He says to us, let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them fear, nor let them be afraid, nor let them be Anxious. Synonyms. So Jesus is going to show us what it looks like to have peace even as you go through something terrible. He says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'll come to you. He says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. This is another shocking statement. Last week he told Philip that you don't really know me. Now he's saying to his disciples, you don't really love me. Again, we're finding a suspicious absence of the Spirit at work. And we'll find that they don't love him because they won't obey him. They do let their hearts get troubled. And that night, every single one of them scatters when Jesus is arrested. And Peter denies him three times. Despite that, Jesus wants to comfort them again by predicting his own resurrection and his return to the Father so that when it happens, they'll remember he predicted this before it happens and it will strengthen their faith. 
Jesus says, I won't talk much longer with you because the ruler of this world, Satan, is coming, but he has no claim on me. Satan was coming to strike what he thought was his fatal blow. Satan was coming to do what he thought was ruining God's plans, but in the reality, he served the purposes of God. Nevertheless, I want you to consider Jesus in this very moment. Jesus had every reason to fear. Jesus had every reason to allow his heart to be troubled. He was preparing to suffer physically, emotionally, spiritually. He was going to have nails pushed through his hands, a crown of thorns on his head, lashes on his back. He was going to be humiliated as sinful men judged the God of the universe guilty and made him carry his own cross to be executed. But none of that pales in comparison to the anguish that Jesus would feel when he went to the cross. And there, because he loved sinners like us, he bore the very wrath of God that our sins earned us to save us from the due penalty for our error. And Jesus, with a perfect knowledge of God, knew what he was facing as he went to the cross. And yet, it was also that knowledge of God and the strength of God and the Spirit of God which strengthened him in his moment of need and betrayal. Uh, this is pure speculation, but I like to think that as Jesus was walking uh, to fa uh, face his, his destiny, that he was maybe whistling, a mighty fortress is our God. Or at least quoting Psalm 46 upon what, what it's based on. says, um, his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Now, Jesus was more than his match. But it also says that we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. Jesus refused even then to give into fear when he had every reason to. Okay, well, what does that mean for me, Pastor? That's Jesus. He was always perfect. Well, let's consider the example of Jesus' disciples that night. I want you to imagine a, a comparable circumstance that your church service was interrupted by police. Dozens of police come in. Your pastor is thrown into prison. The congregation is forcibly scattered. The building is condemned and locked up and no longer able to be used for worship. That's essentially the situation that Jesus' disciples are heading into when Jesus commands them not to fear. It also happens to be the exact situation of the early reign covenant church in China in 2018. What does it look like to not fear in the, in the face of major persecution? This was a church in Chengdu led by the pastor whose name is Wang Yi. And this pastor had been preaching for 10 years on the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all throughout these 10 years, his elders had been arrested and harassed, thrown into jail for a few days, told to stop preaching the gospel. But Pastor Wang Yi knew that he had a higher authority to obey. 
And so he continued preaching the gospel. He continued to condemn the government that was persecuting the church of Christ. And he was warned over and over again uh, not to preach the gospel, not even to exist as a church, because he refused to allow his church to be controlled by the Communist Party of China. And so he kept preaching, and people kept getting arrested, and he recognized that one day he would probably face the penalty from the government for refusing to acknowledge their authority over the church. But he kept preaching. He opened his church. They weren't even a secret church. They were open to anybody who wanted to come. Plain clothes police officers, regular police officers, they would welcome them with open arms. Their congregation would wear name tags with their real names on them and talk to the police when they would come and visit. He published his sermons, which were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and even criticizing the government for persecuting the church. He published them and kept a record of them for anybody who wanted to come and read them. I mean, this guy was not fearing man. And one day, what he feared came true. In 2018, the police came, they scattered his church, they shut it down, and they threw him into prison. And they sentenced him for nine years. That was 2018. In 2021, his wife was permitted a visit. She saw him for a brief time. Since then, no one has seen him or heard from him. And he knew it was coming. And he has a wife and kids. Sometimes it's helpful for us in the West to look at the church and other cultures because it can help us recognize our own blind spots. One of those blind spots I think we have in the West is over the matter of fear and anxiety. They've kind of been normalized. They've kind of become acceptable sins. Sure, I know the Bible tells me six gajillion times that I'm to fear not. I'm only to fear God. Sure, I know it says be anxious for nothing, but we kind of like our anxiety. We kind of like our fear. It's like my neighbor who knew she wasn't supposed to feed the raccoons in the neighborhood because they're mangy and rabid, but she couldn't help it because they were cute. And This was not here in Medfield. <laughs> she just kept feeding the raccoons. We're all like, we would call animal control, and somehow she found a, a limitless supply of anxiety cacoon, uh, raccoons. It made everyone else anxious, right? So our, our fear and anxiety is like our pet sin that we know we shouldn't keep around us, but we kind of, we just do. We just tolerate its presence. I want you to notice what Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't saying that you don't have good reasons to be fearful. Jesus isn't saying that you don't have good reasons to be anxious. I struggle with this. I hop on Twitter for like 10 minutes. I watch the news for like 10 minutes. All of a sudden, I'm angry, I'm anxious, and I'm fearful for the future of our country. And I'm just tied up into a Gordian knot. But as Christians, we don't have to stay that way. Cast your cares on the Lord, for he cares 
for you. Jesus here says, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be afraid. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Brothers and sisters, if we have the Holy Spirit, like Pastor Wang Yi, we don't have to be fearful. We can face down an oppressive totalitarian regime that can throw us into prison, and we can say, I fear God, I'll never fear man. <laughs> because when you have the peace of God, when you know that you are his, it changes your perspective on whatever problems we face. Dear friends, in your weakness, he is strong, and he glorifies himself in you. You don't have to tolerate the presence of fear and anxiety in your life. It may take some time, it may take some counseling, some prayer, diving into the word, but we recognize ultimately fear is a failure of faith. We're not believing what we should believe about God when we give in to fear. We're not believing that he can take care of us. We're not believing that he is in control of all things in those moments. We're trying to control what we cannot control. Which is why when we draw closer to God, when we encounter him, when we truly learn to trust in him, he frees us from fear and anxiety. That's good news to me. Well, I began with an example of a time I represented poorly. I'd like to close with Pastor Wang Yi, who represented him well. I want to read to you a letter that he wrote. <clears throat> he wrote this letter uh, three months before he was arrested. He wrote it because he was pretty sure he was going to be arrested. And he wrote it and distributed it and said that if I'm, uh, if I'm in prison for longer than 48 hours, you should release this letter. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. Uh, I'm just going to read a portion of it. It's very, very encouraging. This is what he wrote anticipating being arrested. He said, precisely because none of my words and actions are directed toward seeking and hoping for societal and political transformation... I have no fear of any social or political power. For the Bible teaches us that God establishes governmental authorities in order to terrorize evildoers, not to terrorize doers of good. If believers in Jesus do no wrong, then they should not be afraid of dark powers. Even though I am often weak, I firmly believe this is the promise of the gospel. It's what I've devoted all my energy to. It is the good news that I am spreading throughout Chinese society. I also understand this happens to be the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. Think about that. Regardless of what crime the government charges me with, whatever filth they fling at me, as long as this charge is related to my faith, my writings, my comments, my teachings, it is merely a lie and temptation of demons. I categorically deny it. I'll serve my sentence, but I won't serve the law. I'll be executed, but I won't plead guilty. Moreover, I must point out that the persecution against the Lord's church 
and against all Chinese people who believe in Jesus is the most wicked and the most horrendous evil of Chinese society. This is not only a sin against Christians, it is a sin against all non-Christians. For the government is brutally and ruthlessly threatening them and hindering them from coming to Jesus. There is no greater wickedness in the world than this. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children. Ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. No one can raise me from the dead. And so, respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands, for why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I? Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I am His servant, and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God, and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. Brothers and sisters, Pastor Wang Yi is not some superhuman. He'd only been a Christian for 10 years when this happened. What he possessed was the Spirit of God which casts out all fear. I pray that God would make us bold like that, that we would embrace the blessings that we have in Christ. Let's pray.